0: Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. All well, right, we're there in Numbers chapter number six, and we've actually been going through a sermon series on Sunday nights through the book of Numbers called Wilderness Wanderings, and it's a chapter-by-chapter study through the book of Numbers. Uh, however, we haven't been in the book of Numbers in in a couple of weeks, several weeks, uh, because we've been having a lot of special things on Sunday nights, of course, with the with the new building and, and, and all the things that have been going on uh, regarding that. So uh, we haven't been in our Wilderness Wandering sermon series in a while. And as I was studying through Numbers chapter 6, uh, preparing for the Sunday night sermon, I realized that this chapter, chapter 6, uh, there's so much good content. There's so many good things to learn in this chapter. There's more than could be covered in, in one sermon. So I've decided uh, to preach on Numbers chapter 6 this morning in our morning uh, session. And we're not going to get through the whole chapter, uh, but I'm going to finish it tonight. So we're going to look at Numbers chapter 6, part of it this morning, part of it uh, tonight. And I do encourage you to be with us tonight, of course, for our uh, evening service. And this is a very interesting chapter in the Bible, Numbers chapter 6. If you look there, verse number 1, the Bible says, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves I want you to notice this little phrase. This is really the theme of, the, of, of most of the chapter, except for the last few verses. It says, to vow of a vow of a Nazarite, to vow a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord. And what this chapter in chapter 6 here, uh, Numbers chapter 6, is mainly about, it's about this special vow that people had the ability to take in the Old Testament, which was known as the Nazarite vow. And the word, the word vow is defined as a solemn or serious promise, a pledge. A personal commitment uh, to do something, to serve in a certain way, or or to meet a certain condition. And this Nazarite vow is very interesting. uh, Vow in the Old Testament and also the New Testament. Uh, It it does not apply in the New Testament, but we do see aspects of it uh, in the Gospels. And like I said, there was so much information uh, that I I didn't, I I couldn't cover it all in one sermon. So I'm gonna there's there. I've got uh, five points uh, that I'd like to cover. Uh, this morning regarding the Nazarite vow and uh, excuse me, I've got five points. I'm not going to cover all five points. I'm going to cover three of them this morning and I'm going to cover the last two tonight and the last two, uh, the reason I'm leaving those for tonight is because I think that's it'll be an interesting sermon. We're going to actually go through and look at the characters in the Bible who were Nazarites uh, and, and and look at that and, and we'll study that out. So I've got five points total. I'll go through three this morning and we'll cover the last two uh, tonight. Uh, But this morning will be very much of a Bible study. We're going to make it about halfway through Numbers chapter 6. We're going to just study through this passage. And I want to encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week. There's a place for you to write down some things. And this is a very interesting subject in the Bible, the Nazarite vow. So let me give you the first point. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Let's begin by talking about the purpose of the Nazarite vow. The purpose of the Nazarite vow... You'll notice there again in Numbers chapter 6 and verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves, to vow a vow of a Nazarite. I want you to notice this little phrase here, because this is really the purpose of the Nazarite vow, to separate themselves unto the Lord. To separate themselves unto uh, the Lord. When the Bible uses this word, separate, The idea there is to consecrate or to make holy. That which is holy, according to the Bible, is that which is set aside uh, or separated unto the Lord. Now, we're going to go through this whole chapter, but let me just highlight this for you in the chapter. Look down at verse number 5, Numbers chapter 6 and verse 5. All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in the which he separated himself unto the Lord. Look at verse 6. All the days that he separated himself unto the Lord. I want you to notice the emphasis regarding the Nazarite vow is that it was someone who could take this vow and separate themselves unto the Lord. Verse 5, in the which he separated himself unto the Lord. Verse 6, all the days that he separated himself unto the Lord. Look at verse 7, Numbers chapter 6, verse 7. And he shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother. Or for his brother or sister or for his sister when they die, and we're going to come back and look at all those uh, passages here in a second. I just want to highlight this for you, the last part of verse seven, because the consecration of his God is upon his head. Notice these words are being used interchangeably. He separated himself unto the Lord because the consecration of his God is upon his head. Look at verse eight: All the days of his separation he is holy unto the lord and and i want to remind you and i've taught this a lot throughout the years to our church family but when the bible teaches this idea of being holy and of course god said be holy as i am holy the idea is that we are to be separated set apart when certain tools for the tabernacle were made holy to be used in the service of the lord then those things were set aside to be used for god and when it comes to separation What we always want to remember is that it is separation from the world. The Bible teaches, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. There should be a difference in the life of a believer versus an unbeliever. There should be a difference in the way that Christians go about their lives and the way they live their lives than those that uh, are not saved or not believers. But But always remember the fact... We, we tend to want to focus on, oh, separation from the world, and that is an aspect to it, but it is a separation from the world unto God, to be separated unto the Lord, to be consecrated unto the Lord. Look at verse 12, same chapter, Numbers chapter 6, verse 12, and he shall consecrate, notice the word consecrate, it means to declare sacred or holy to declare to the service of God, he shall consecrate uh, unto the Lord the days of his separation. Now keep your place there in Numbers chapter 6, that's obviously our text for this morning, and go with me real quickly to the book of James in the New Testament, James chapter number 4, towards the end of the New Testament, if you start right at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and you go backwards, you'll have the book of Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd and 1st Peter, and then the book of James. Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd and 1st Peter, and then the book of James. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and when you get to James 4, just keep your finger right there and go back to Numbers chapter 6. We're going to come right back to James 4. I want you to see this connection, but I want you to understand that the purpose of the Nazarite vow was twofold. The main purpose, which is what I've been emphasizing and showing you in the the chapter, is that it was a vow that was to be taken where an individual would separate themselves unto the Lord. They would consecrate themselves. They would make themselves holy for the use of God. They would separate themselves from the world and unto God. But what I want you to understand and what was so special about the Nazarite vow, because having a separation uh, unto the Lord is not that special, especially uh, in the book of Numbers. We've already seen, if you were with us on Sunday nights as we studied chapters 1 through 5, we've already seen that there is an entire tribe that has been separated unto the Lord, consecrated unto the Lord, given unto the service of God. And of course, it's the tribe of the Levites. And the Levites and the priests were set aside to serve God. They were consecrated and holy unto the Lord. What's unique about the Nazarite vow is that Unlike being a Levite, which meant you had to be born into a certain family, unlike being a priest or being the high priest, which means that you have to be a descendant of Aaron, this was something that anyone could do. Being a Levite and being a priest was only available to certain individuals. They had to be a male, and they had to be of the tribe of Levi, and to be a priest, they had to be a descendant of Aaron. Only a male descendant of Aaron could be a priest. Only a male member of the tribe of Levi could be a Levite and consecrated unto the Lord. But here with this Nazarite vow, look at it again, uh, verse number two, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, when either, notice how this is unique, either man or woman. Male or female could take this vow. Man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord. The interesting thing about the Nazarite vow is that it was something that was available to anyone, any tribe, male or woman. Anybody could take this vow and consecrate themselves unto the Lord. Now you're there in, in, in number 6. Go to James chapter 4 if you found that already. James chapter 4 and look at verse number 8. James chapter 4 and verse 8. Notice what the Bible says here. James chapter 4 verse 8. The Bible says, draw nigh to God. I love that little phrase. Draw nigh to God. And then notice this. And He will draw nigh to you. You know, one of the first takeaways that we can take from this Old Testament vow, though we understand that the Old Testament sacrifices have been done away with the Levitical priesthood has been done away with and even this vow has been done away with the the Nazarite vow is no longer something that that we take as New Testament uh, believers but one principle that we can learn from it or one application that we can take from it is this that anybody can choose to draw nigh to God you say well I wasn't born into the right family doesn't matter well I wasn't born uh, into in the right circumstances doesn't matter well I'm not a preacher doesn't matter I'm not a pre it doesn't matter Anybody can make the choice to draw themselves close to the Lord. Notice it again, James 4, 8, draw nigh to God. When you and I, if we choose to draw close to God, to draw nigh to God, to learn of God and to know God and to make Him known, the Bible says that when we draw nigh to God, the Bible says He will draw nigh to you. But notice, we cannot draw nigh to God without cleansing ourselves. Look at James 4:8. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. And then it says, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. The cleansing and the purifying there is this idea of consecration, of separating yourself unto the Lord and separating uh, uh, from the world. And from sin unto the Lord. And here's all I want to say, and and, and the the point that I want to make, uh, just as we begin this and look at this first idea of the purpose of the Nazarite vial, is this that anybody can choose to draw nigh to God, anybody can choose to be close to God. God is no respecter of persons. And like the Bible says about Abraham, that Abraham spake with God and knew God uh, in in a level where it could be said that they were friends. Or the Bible says about Moses that he spake to God uh, face to face as a man speaks. With a friend, or the fact that the Bible says about David that he had a heart for God and that he had he was a man after God's own heart, and 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 when we see men like John, and we see men like Moses, and we see men like Paul, and we see men in the Bible uh, like Elijah and Elisha that had this close walk with God, you and I, we should not look at those individuals and say, well, they were special. There was something special about them. No, the Bible says about Elijah that he was a man of like passions, like like you and I. He was a normal individual. You say, what, what, what's the takeaway? Here's the takeaway. Anyone can draw nigh to God. Anyone can get close to God. And when you begin to take steps to separate yourself from the world and separate yourself unto God and consecrate yourself unto the Lord, He will draw nigh to you. Amen. God is no respecter of persons. But let's also consider this on the flip side. The fact that anyone can draw nigh to God does not mean that every, means that not everybody draws nigh to God. And here's the truth. You say, well, yeah, unsaved versus saved. No, even within the Christian community. Please understand this. Not all Christians are created equal. Not all Christians have the same relationship with their Heavenly Father. Some Christians have a closer relationship with God than others some are more separated some are more consecrated some are more blessed some are closer uh, to God you say well is that God playing favorites no 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 draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you any man or woman or child can take uh, make the decision uh, like in the Old Testament to take the Nazarite vow and draw close to God you say what's the difference between those mighty men and mighty women of God that have drawn close to Him that have God answered prayer that have uh, uh, felt the power of God and felt the Holy Spirit work through them as they uh, minister unto others, what's the difference? The difference is this: one chose to get close to God and the other didn't. So please understand this if you're here this morning and you say, "My Christian life is dead, it's stale, it's not exciting. That is because of a choice that you've made because you can draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Anyone can get close to God. God is no respecter of persons. In fact, God yearns to have a relationship with you. Go back to Numbers chapter 6. You can lose your place there in James. We're not going to come back to it. But I begin this morning by speaking to you regarding the purpose of the Nazarite vow. What was the purpose of the Nazarite vow? The purpose was to give the ability to anyone to get close to God. And look, people often say, just yesterday I was speaking to a man and his his heart was in the right place. I, I, I honestly believe his heart was in the right place. I don't think he was saying this. In any sort of critical way, he's honestly saying this as a compliment, but we were talking and we're, uh, this wasn't soul winning, I went soul winning yesterday, but this wasn't soul winning, we were in some sort of a a business situation, I was talking to this man, he found out I was a pastor, asked me where I pastored, and we're... Having that conversation. And then he began to, to kind of just uh, compliment me and say, You know, you pastors, you guys are special. You're special people and you have a special connection with God and, and you can teach the Bible and help others to learn the Bible. And, and I understand what he was saying and he was, he, he was giving me a compliment and, and praise the Lord for it. But I was thinking to myself, That's not true. Pastors have the same King James Bible that you have, they have the same Holy Spirit you have. Now, I understand that God has given pastors to teach and to help, and my job is to help you go further, faster, and I understand that. I'm not minimizing that. In fact, I appreciate anybody uh, uh, acknowledging that, but the truth is this, that all of us have the same God, the same access to God, the same Holy Spirit, the same Word of God. We all have, if you're saved this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ is your mediator. There is one man that mediates between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And we all have the same opportunity to draw nigh to God. That's the first lesson we see from this Nazarite vow. The purpose of the Nazarite vow: anyone could take it. What if you're not a Levite? Anyone could take it. What if you're not an Aaronite? Anyone could take it. What if you're a female? Anyone could take it. Anyone in the Old Testament, children of Israel, nation could draw nigh to God. And let me say something for the New Testament believers: anyone in the New Testament can draw nigh to God as well. Go back to Numbers chapter six. Let me give you the second point this morning. First, we see the purpose of the Nazarite vow. And I'd like you to notice the period of the Nazarite vow. And what I mean by that is the duration. And there's not really much of an application here, more than just an observation that you need to understand this so you can understand the Nazarite vow. That the Nazarite vow was generally for a certain period of time. Look at verse 5. All the days of the vow. The phrase, all the days of the vows indicates that the vow is for a certain number of days. Now, the Bible does not actually tell us, as far as I can tell in what I saw, maybe you know something different, uh, but the Bible does not actually give us like a time frame for the Nazarite vow, like you're supposed to take it for three months or six months or whatever, uh, but it, there does seem to indicate that there is a time association. All the days of the vow of a separation shall no razor come upon his head. Notice this little phrase in verse five, until the days be fulfilled. So notice that there was a start to the date and an end to the day, all the days of the vow, until the days be fulfilled, look at verse 6, all the days, look at verse 8, all the days, look at verse 12, and he shall consecrate unto the Lord the days of his separation, and shall bring a lamb of the first year for a trespass offering, but the days that were before shall be lost, because his separation was Defiled. Look at verse 13. And this is the law of the Nazarite, when the days of his separation are fulfilled. So I want you to notice that there was a period, a duration. There was the days of the vow, and then there was a time in which the days were fulfilled. The days that his separations are fulfilled. Now, let me just... Uh, Say this, and again, there's not really a spiritual application here, uh, just an observation that you need to understand as we continue on and, and, and learn about the Nazarite vow, and especially tonight as we look at the Nazarite vow. And it is this that for the vast majority of people who took the Nazarite vow, this was a temporary thing. Now, there are some exceptions, we'll look at that tonight. There were some people, like, for example, Samson, who Samson is probably the most famous of the Nazarites in the entire Bible. Samson was a Nazarite his entire life. He was a Nazarite from the womb until the day he died. That was a special circumstance. That was something that God did uh, special. He sent an angel down to his mother while he was in the womb and ordained that Samson would be a Nazarite his entire life. However, that was an exception Uh, to the rule because the vast majority of the people who took on the Nazarite vow did it for a temporary uh, period of time. This is important for you to understand as we get into what we're going to spend most of our time with this morning. And it is point number three, the parameters of the Nazarite vow or what it is that the Nazarite vow entails and we need to remember that for the vast majority of people this was this was uh temporary this was not something that they did their entire life there were some examples of people that maybe were Nazarites from birth or people that were Nazarites their whole life uh but that was not something that was common so this was a time that was set aside to draw close to god and by the way let's just go ahead and make this application even in our christian life there are times when we should uh take some time to draw close to God, maybe more intensely or more purposefully uh, than 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 we do every day. There are seasons in life. There are times in life when you can draw close to God. We see a parallel to this in the New Testament, not the Nazarite vow, but a parallel to this in the New Testament is a time of fasting. When you, no one was expected to fast for five years, but there is there are these fasts in the Bible: twenty four day, uh, twenty four hour fast, or three day fast, or seven day fast, or. Even up to 40-day fast where people would take a certain amount of time to even more purposefully and more particularly draw close to God, get close to God, and uh, deny their flesh and the things of this world. So we see the period of the Nazarite vow. That's point number two. And then point number three is the parameter of the Nazarite vow. And I told you that I have five points, and I'm only going to cover three. And some of you are thinking like, oh, praise the Lord, we're going to get out of here early. But the thing is that I'm going to spend the rest of my time on this uh, point, point number three, the parameter of the Nazarite vow, because there's a lot to go over. This. And then tonight, uh, we're going to spend most of our time probably on uh, the, the participants of the Nazarite vow and talking about the different Nazarites throughout the Bible. And, and, and then we'll look at the price of the Nazarite vow tonight as well uh, this, this evening. But let's talk about the parameters of the Nazarite vow. What did this vow entail? And again, this is an Old Testament vow, but there are everything in the Old Testament, even the things that have been done away with, we, they still serve as shadows and we can learn from them as principles. We don't do a Nazarite vow, but we can learn from the principle, and some of those principles still apply. So we don't do a Nazarite vow, but we can learn from the, the, the principle of the Nazarite vow that you and I can draw close to God. Well, there were some parameters that had to be followed for someone that took the Nazarite vow, and some of those things either still apply for us today, or we can learn uh, from them. So let's talk about the parameters of the Nazarite vow. And I've... I've, I've Kind of broken them up into three uh, categories: things that you were uh, to abstain from, things that you were to allow, and things that you were to avoid. and uh, And let's let's just look at these. And again, if you're taking notes, uh, the parameters of the Nazarite vow. Let's begin with what they were to abstain. They were to abstain, or there was an abstaining from grape products. There was an abstaining from grape products. Look at verse three. Numbers chapter 6 and verse 3 he shall separate himself notice from wine and strong drink now that is a reference to alcohol the strong drink there they were to separate themselves from wine and strong drink and shall not uh, and shall drink notice no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes nor eat moist grapes or dry now I want you to understand uh, uh, what we're looking at here this is an abstaining from all grape products this includes alcohol or alcoholic wine but it's not just alcohol it's any product that comes from the from the grape the way someone took this nazirite vow for as long as they took the nazirite vow they were to abstain from grape products from from grape products look at it again in verse 3 he shall separate himself "...from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried." So notice, it's not just alcohol. They were not to eat moist grapes or dried, verse 4, "...all the days of the separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels, that is the inner softer part of the seed." even to the husk, that is the dry external covering of the seed, they were to abstain from all grape and grape products, from the kernel, even uh, to the husk, now here's what I want you to understand, okay, you're you're there in number six, go to Proverbs in the Bible, if you go right, if you open your Bible just right in the center, you'll more than likely fall in the book of Psalms. Right after Psalms, you have the book of Proverbs. Now, do me a favor. If you get to Psalms, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. We're going to come back to Psalms and we're also going to go to Luke and we're going to be going back and forth. This is going to be, like I said, a Bible study and we're going to go from Numbers to uh, Psalms to Luke. Uh, so if you want to keep your places in those, uh, in those uh, books, then that'll be a good thing to do. Here's what you need to understand about this abstaining from grapes. It covers two parameters. One is to to, uh, abstain from alcohol. But it was also to abstain from just grapes in general. And, And Numbers 6 and verse 4 is perfect when it says... From the kernel, that's the inner softer part of the seed, even to the husk. You weren't supposed to eat any part of a grape. And, and of course, that would include alcohol because he mentions strong drink. He mentions uh, the, 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 the wines and all these different things. And if you know anything about fermentation, which we'll talk about fermentation here in a second, you know that the fermentation actually comes from the skin of the grape. So the fact that God is telling, don't, don't eat the inside or the outside, don't eat any of it, um, then is, is God saying abstain from all grape products? Now again, uh, is God necessarily against people eating grapes? Not necessarily. There is a, an illustration here that is being made, but I want you to understand uh, that this was something that, the, that they were supposed to do as part of the Nazarite vow, but this grape, abstaining from grape, covers two different things that, that we need to talk about. One is alcohol, and the other is uh, is, is the grapes themselves. So they were to drink nothing that was intoxicating. Now, let me just say this, and this might come as, as new to some of you, and that's okay, uh, but you should look at what the Bible says, and you should ask yourself, what does the Bible say? It is always the proper question to ask as a Bible-believing Christian, if you claim to be a Bible-believing Christian, to ask yourself, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? They were to drink nothing intoxicating. They were to drink nothing that was uh, alcoholic. And let me just say it clearly, and then I'll prove it to you from the Bible. So when I offend you, don't don't just you know uh, stop listening because I'm gonna prove it to you from the Bible. This was not uh, unique to the Nazarite. This is something the Bible teaches for everyone. The Bible is against people drinking alcohol. Period. Let me you know. Let me just say clearly. Uh, apparently, we have a lot more drinking people in this church uh, than I envisioned, so maybe this sermon is needed. The Bible is against alcohol, all right? And God is against it, you know? Now, let me prove it to you from the Bible, because you might think, oh, I've never heard that before. Proverbs 23, look at verse 31. Proverbs 23, verse 31, if you find Psalms, right after Psalms, you have Proverbs, keep your place in Psalms, we're going to come back to it, but go to Proverbs 23 and verse 31. Proverbs 23, 31, notice what the Bible says, look not thou upon the wine. Now, people often say, well, you know, Jesus turned water into wine. We're going to talk about that. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a second. But I want you to see that This is a clear command from the Bible. Look not thou upon the wine. Now, you say, well, you're not supposed to look at any wine. Well, notice what the Bible says. Always ask the question, what does the Bible say? Look not thou upon the wine when? So, according to the Bible, there is a time when God tells you, hey, you shouldn't even look at it. Look not thou upon the wine, when? Now here, let, let's just use some, some I, I realize some of you, you know, went to public school and your reading and comprehension is not the greatest, so let me just <laughs> help you out a little bit, okay? The fact that it's telling us, look not thou upon the wine, when? Tells us that there is a time in which God says, now you should no longer look on the wine. There is a wine that God says, don't even look at it. Now, look, if God tells you don't even look at it, He's telling you to avoid it. He's not telling you to drink it just with your eyes closed. <laughs> he says, look not thou upon the wine, when? When should we no longer look on the wine? When it is red. You say, what does this mean? What God is going to describe for us in Proverbs 23, 31 is the process of fermentation. Because it is the yeast which ferments the wine Um, that is found, and that yeast is found in the skin of the grapes, which the skin of the grapes is what would give it that red color. So God says, when, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, notice, when it giveth his color in the cup, again, this is the source of the yeast in the red skin, notice, when it moveth itself aright. What does that mean? That is referring to the carbon dioxide that is released during the time of fermentation. And what God is saying here is, I don't want you drinking alcoholic wine. I don't want you to drink wine once it's become uh, fermented. Now, obviously, we understand that their fermentation and the process of fermentation by itself is not necessarily a bad thing, okay? I'm, I'm not telling you, don't take Tylenol. Or whatever, you know, um, but but the point is this that wine can ferment to the point where it will make you drunk, where, where, where you will be intoxicated, where you will not be sober. And God says at that point, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth this color in the cup, when it moveth itself right. God is telling us to not even look at the wine when it is fermented. And, but then people ask the question, well, what about all the positive. Mentions of wine in the Bible or Jesus turning water into wine, you know, is there a contradiction in the Bible because he's there's other positive mentions of wine in the Bible. And then there's this there's and I'm showing you one, but there's lots of negative, lots of negative verses throughout the entire Bible about alcohol. That's against it. Go to Song of Solomon chapter eight. You're there in Proverbs. You'll go past Ecclesiastes into Song of Solomon. Now I realize I've already lost some of you and that's okay. but if you actually care what the Bible says. You should turn to these passages and look at it. You say, "Why?" well, then what about the positive mentions of wine in the Bible? And here's what I want you to understand. Throughout history, the word wine has been used to speak about both alcoholic fermented wine and to also speak about what you and I would call grape juice. The term has been wine throughout the Bible, uh, throughout history. The word juice, is, uh, it, it is used in the Bible. It's used one time. In fact, I'm going to show it to you. Uh, but it's, it's not commonly used. The common word was just to refer to all of it as wine. S- Song of Solomon, chapter 8, look at verse 2. Let me, you, some of you are like, I don't know. Okay, well, let me prove it to you. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 2. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 2. I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house who would instruct me, I would cause thee to drink of the spiced wine, notice, listen, the Bible is its own commentary, God often puts words in, in a context to define them for us, here, the Song of Solomon says, I would cause thee to drink spiced wine, what do you mean by that, of the juice of my pomegranate. In fact, this is the only time the word juice is used in the King James Bible, and it is used as a synonym to the word wine. She said, I will drink of the spice wine of the juice of my pomegranate. Why does God do that? He's defining for us that not every time that you see the word wine in the Bible, he's talking about alcohol. Sometimes he's talking about juice. In fact, many times he's talking about juice. And here's what you need to understand. In the Old Testament and in the ancient world, drinking wine, juice, non-alcoholic juice... Was something that you did, uh, you know, at, at, as as to indulge. So it was special. You know, I, I would equate it to, although it's very loose because we live in such a different society. But it's like, you know, you went to a restaurant and, and 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 you you had a soda with your drink with your meal. Maybe at home you normally just drink water, but you're you're doing something special. You had a soda. I know there are other people who drink soda every day, and that's the resort. But that the, the idea is that the wine cause look, when God is telling Abraham when the Bible is telling us that Abraham rose up early in the morning and he's having wine, you really think Abraham was just some wino? Just Abraham was just some homeless guy who gets up first in the morning, and just pops open a beer or you know, alcoholic alcohol and starts drinking. Obviously, when the Bible references the fact that they're drinking wine early in the morning, they're having juice, they're having a gathering, they're having, uh, they're they're getting together. Here, the Bible says they drink of the spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. Pomegranates. You say, I don't know, I don't know that really proves it. Okay, go to Isaiah sixty-five. Isaiah sixty-five. You're there in Song of Solomon. Just flip over to Isaiah. Isaiah sixty-five. Look at verse eight. Isaiah sixty-five, verse eight. And look, if this doesn't prove to you what I'm showing you, then you're. You don't want to know the truth. You want to be blinded. Isaiah 65, 8. Because here's what I'm, I'm, I'm proving to you Does the Bible use the word wine for non alcoholic drink, for what we would call juice? Well, we just saw in the Song of Solomon that the word wine and the word u- juice are used interchangeably. Isaiah 65, 8. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine, notice, as the new wine is found in the cluster. What's a cluster? A cluster is fruit that is growing on a vine. This fruit has not even been plucked. If it's on the cluster, it's still on the vine. It hasn't been plucked from the vine yet. In order for it to be fermented, it would have to die, decay. But yet here, God is referring to the juice that is found in the grape still on the cluster, and he calls it new wine. So that proves to you that the Bible often use the word wine not referring to alcohol. And then people, because here's the thing, and look, let me save you the time because somebody's going to walk up to me or send me an email, Jesus turned water into wine. Here's what's funny about the, the crowd that wants to say, no, it's okay to drink alcohol. No Christian believes that it's okay to get drunk or to be a drunkard because I mean, you just can't get away from that. The Bible is so clear on the fact that you shouldn't be a drunkard. But then they'll go to Jesus and say, see, he turned water into wine. And, and they'll say, it's alcohol. I don't think it's alcohol. I think he turned water into grape juice, which the Bible calls wine. But let's say he did turn water into wine, alcoholic wine, like you say. Look at the story where Jesus turned water into wine. The Bible says that he went to a wedding and they drank all the wine. All the wine, the Bible says they drank till they were full. All the wine was gone. Mary comes to Jesus and says, there's no more wine. And he takes six uh, he makes six, uh, 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 ke- uh, uh, you know, they want us to think six kegs. You know, is that really what we're supposed to believe? That like Jesus just brought six kegs of alcohol to a wedding after they'd already drank all the alcohol. Doesn't that sound like being a drunkard? Is that what I'm supposed to believe? And then the people that are drinking the wine, they're like, this is better than what we started with. Look, if they were already had drank all the wine and they were drunk, no one's going to be like, this stuff's better than the stuff. They weren't drinking alcohol. Jesus didn't bring six cakes to a wedding. Are you serious? You're just trying to justify your own sin. Hey, why don't you take the equivalent of a Nazarite vow and separate yourself unto the Lord? And realize that God doesn't want any Christian to drink alcohol ever for any reason, period, end of story. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are not to participate in that which is intoxicated. By the way, that includes drugs. By the way, that includes smoking pot. That includes anything that makes you not sober. Amen. So they were, the, the, the Nazarite was to not drink anything intoxicating, but here's the point that I'm trying to make to you. That was not unique to the Nazarite. That's for everyone. No Christian should drink alcohol. God is against it. Look not thou upon the wine. And I always think it's funny if people are like, well, I just drink a little wine, you know, because Paul said wine for thy stomach's sake. And they're like, I just drink a little wine for the health benefits. You know that you can get the exact same health benefits from organic Welch's grape juice? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know that the fermentation and the alcohol and the wine actually kills your brain cells and kills your liver? And there's nothing healthy about the alcoholic part of wine. So maybe you got to ask this question. What does the Bible say? Did Jesus really bring six kegs to a wedding? It's ridiculous. Go, to, go back to Psalm. So the fact that they, they were not supposed to partake, they were supposed to abstain from the grape products, and that included nothing intoxicating, but I just want to be clear about something. That wasn't unique to the Nazarite. That's for everyone. But here's the part that was unique to the Nazarite, that they were to abstain and they were to not partake in anything indulgent. Because remember, these people are taking a vow to consecrate themselves unto the Lord. And throughout the Bible, and look, if you see in the Bible, because people often ask me this, all preachers are like, well, then how do you know in the Bible when it's talking about alcoholic wine and non-alcoholic wine? Well, just read it. Right. First of all, some oftentimes he uses terms like strong drink. But look, if someone's drinking wine, and then they're getting raped, which literally happens in the Bible, that's alcohol. No positive mention. If if the Bible's talking about, like it says in the Bible, they're drinking wine, and then they're throwing up, and then they're they're stumbling, and they're uh, just, you know, getting naked and doing things that are obscene, that's alcohol. When Abraham's pouring wine early in the morning, meeting with the Lord, that's not alcohol. Okay, so you should just be able to tell by the context. And by the way, kids, because look, I already lost some of the adults. They're already gone. So let me just help some of the kids. Hey, kids, the world's lying to you. There's nothing fun about alcohol. All their stupid ads and all their stupid commercials where they show all these fit young people at the beach drinking alcohol. It's not true. Okay, you you say, what happens if I drink alcohol? You're going to get a a big uh, uh, beer belly. That's what you're going to get. I feel like that's what they should show on their commercials. Some old, fat guy, drunk, you know what they should show is, look, I've never stepped foot in a bar. But let me tell you, kids, I can tell you right now, based on what the Bible says, they smell like piss. They smell like barf. They smell like throwing up. They smell like garbage. Stay away from it. Never touch it. Never touch it. Look not thou upon the wine. You say, Pastor, I think you should preach a more loving sermon. This is the most loving sermon I could preach. Alcohol destroys people's lives. That's right. Young people should stay away from it. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself rite. Now the Nazarite was to avoid alcohol, which is something we should all do. But they were also to avoid the grapes, which God has nothing against grapes. But during this period of time, they were to abstain from not only that which was intoxicating, but also that which was indulgent. Psalm 104, are you there? I just want you to see a, pro- a good reference To wine. Psalm 104, 14. He caused the grass to grow for the cattle and the herb uh, herb for the service of man, and uh, that he might bring forth food out of the earth. Psalm 104, verse 15. Look at it. And wine that maketh glad the heart of man. And by the way, that is not alcohol. Don't tell me alcohol ruins people's lives. Wine that maketh uh, glad the heart of man and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. Notice, the context here, these are all good things, healthy things. Oil to make his face to shine, bread which strengtheneth man's heart, wine that the glad the heart. So in the Bible, wine, not alcohol, just grape juice or grapes, were something that was like a treat. It was something indulgent. It was something that you did, and it it was a nice thing to do. You brought out the wine for a nice occasion, not alcohol, the juice for nice occasions to celebrate, but the vow for the Nazarite was that they were to abstain from that which was intoxicating, and they were to abstain from that which was indulgent. What is the application for us? Keep your place there in Psalms, if you would, and go to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9. In the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 9. Keep your place in Psalms, go to Luke 9, and then keep your place, if you will, in both Psalms and Luke, because we're going to leave it, and we're going to go back to Numbers, we're going to go back and forth. Why would God say, okay, we understand why God said, don't drink alcohol, strong drink. That's something that no one was supposed to do. But then why would he say, don't even drink the grapes? Don't drink the the grape juice. Don't just, what was the point of that? During the Nazarite vow, it was this idea that you were to live a life where you were denying self. This was to be an austere time in your life, a time of self-discipline a time to be strict. And look, the New Testament equivalent is fasting. What do you do when you fast? You separate yourself from the Lord, and what do you not have? Food. You literally do not feed the flesh. You also, if you're married, you abstain from the physical relationship with your spouse. You're supposed to, during that time, live a, a life in such a way that you are not feeding the desires of your flesh. And of course, that's for a season. It's temporary. It's temporary. But the application is this, that if you and I are going to draw nigh to God, we're going to have to learn to deny ourselves. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, And he said unto them all, If any man will come after me, notice the words, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Just because you're a Christian does not mean you're a follower. Just because you're a Christian does not mean that you're a disciple. Just because you're a Christian does not mean that you are consecrated unto the Lord say what do i need to do to be a christian believe on the lord jesus christ and thou shalt be saved do i have to be a disciple to be a christian no you do not do i have to be a disciple to be to go to heaven no all you need to do is put your trust in christ and what he did on the cross for salvation but if you want to draw nigh to god you're gonna have to cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your heart you double-minded you're gonna have to deny jesus said if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So they were to abstain from the great products. Nothing intoxicating, that's for everyone, and nothing indulgent, nothing that gratifies the desires. And our, the application of verse today is that if you and I want to draw an eye to God, Jesus said we're going to have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Amen. You cannot live the life of a disciple while gratifying every desire of your flesh. Go back to Numbers chapter 6. Let me give you the, uh, the next parameter in this vow. Abstain from the great products. Here's the next parameter. Allowing the hair of your head to grow. This is a really interesting one, and I want to take some time to explain this to you. Numbers chapter 6, verse 5. All the days of the vow of a separation, there shall no razor come upon his head. Until the days be fulfilled in the which he separated himself unto the Lord, he shall be holy, and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. So here we have this uh, parameter given to the Nazarite vow, and it is this that while they took of the Nazarite vow, they were to allow the hair of their head uh, to grow now. Keep your place there at number 6 and let's just run some verses real quickly. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you kept your place in Luke, I'd like you to continue to keep your place in Luke. Go to 1 Corinthians. You have Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. They were to allow their hair hair to grow. Uh, This is sometimes confusing to people because the Bible actually teaches something different. And I'm going to explain to you why it is that we see this seemingly contradiction. It's not a contradiction, but what people often refer to as a contradiction. 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14. Always ask yourself, what does the Bible say? 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. You know, the Bible teaches that men should not have long hair. The Bible says, does not nature itself even teach you? that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. And look, I'm, you know, I preach this, and then people get all mad at me. And I literally, you know what I just literally did? I haven't even said anything yet. I just read the Bible. I just read a verse. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. Sorry, hippies. Sorry, hell's angels who are supposed to be these tough guys with their little girly long hair. Say, oh, you fight a hell's angel, you know, fight a guy looking like a girl. I don't think you should say that. Does not even nature self-teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. So look, the Bible teaches that men are to have short hair and women are to have long hair. That's what the Bible says. Now, People will often get confused with the Nazarite vow. Keep your place right there in 1 Corinthians. Go, go, or I'm sorry, in Luke. Actually, just stay in 1 Corinthians for a second. People get confused because in the Nazarite vow, it says no razor shall come upon his head. Now, let me just explain a couple of things here. First of all, remember that for the vast majority of people, the Nazarite vow was a temporary thing, okay? So imagine if I today was living in the Old Testament and I took a Nazarite vow right now. And let's say, you know, I did it for whatever. We don't know how long they did it for. It could have been weeks, could have been months. Let's say even even if I took it for a year, a Nazarite vow, and I just took it for a year, how long do you think my hair is going to get? You know, I'm going to need a haircut. I I, I don't know what has happened to me, but as I've gone older, like my hair has become, I don't know if healthy is the right word or what, but I used to be able to get a haircut and not need one for for three weeks now my wife cuts my hair and she, she she has to cut my hair every 10 days like it's like my hair is like growing faster as i'm getting older i'm not sure why i don't please don't tell me if it's a medical condition or what, i don't care <laughs> you have the special medical condition whatever but here's the thing though like you know even even if i just didn't cut my hair for a year you know, because I keep my hair short because I've got kind of weird hair, and if I didn't cut my hair for a year, it, it'd just kind of be like this puffy, like, like a chia pet, you know? It'd be like afros. Like, I could preach against the 60s, but I couldn't preach against the 70s because I'd have this, like, afro thing going on, right? And so, but how long is it going to get in a year? You see what I'm saying? It's not going to get that long if you do it for a year, So for the vast majority of people, not cutting your hair was not something that's going to make your hair. Now, here's the thing that people always come up with. Okay, Samson had long hair. Now, here's the thing. Samson did have long hair. But let me just ask you, what is Samson known for? Samson is known for his strength. His strength was unique to him. No one else that took a Nazareth vow had strength like Samson. Samson had this unique strength, which was unique to him, And Samson was also known for what? His long hair, which was unique to him. Have you ever heard the statement before, the exception proves the rule? Here's the thing. If if you were to ask a a class of Sunday school kids, you know, what's unique about Samson? You know what they're going to say? Either his strength or his hair. So if, if in the Bible there's one guy who's known for his long hair, And it's like, yeah, Samson is the long-haired guy in the Bible. Then the exception proves that that was not the norm. That that was not the rule. Do you understand? That's where the phrase comes from. The exception proves the rule. The fact that there's an exception and people are like, whoa, Samson had long hair, proves that not everybody had long hair. So even that is proving that this was a unique thing for Samson. You know, let me just say this. And again, I'm kind of getting on rabbit's throw. I'm going to talk about this more tonight, but let me just throw it in because some of you, you're not coming back, which is why I'm giving it all to you now. But, you know, people have to say, well, Jesus had long hair. No, he did not. Jesus was a Nazarite. No, he was not. Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. Those are two different things. A Nazarene is someone, Nazareth is a location. It's where he grew up. He was a Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. Jesus was not a Nazarite. I will prove that to you tonight. You come back tonight and I'll prove that to you. He was not a Nazarite. And people say, Jesus had long hair. No, he didn't. You didn't get that from the Bible. You got that from Michelangelo or whoever in the Renaissance drawing Jesus with long hair. And look, again, the exception proves the rule. If Jesus had long hair, why did Judas, why did Judas, when he was betraying the Savior, when he was betraying our Lord, why did he have to bring all the guards, and they said, which one is he? And he said, uh, 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 you know what? Let me go up, the one that I kiss, he's the one. Why did Judas have to do that? You know why? Because Jesus looked like everyone else. If Jesus had long hair, why didn't Judas just say, the long-haired hippie, don't you see him? (laughs) Get the long-haired hippie. If, if, if Jesus had long hair, why did Jesus have to say, uh, how do I describe him? I don't know. He's about this tie, He's got short hair. He's got a beard. They're, he's about this tight. They're all about that high. He's, he's got short hair. They all have short hair. He has a beard. They all have beards. Uh, okay, like, you know, I'll walk up to him. The one that I kiss, he's the one. He had to point him out because Jesus, and is that what Isaiah says about Jesus? He was just like, looked like everyone else. There was nothing in him that was comely. There was nothing in him that was exceptional as far as how he looked. He just looked like a normal person. So don't tell me that Jesus, supposedly this descendant of Abraham, was some blonde-haired, blue-eyed Fabio, you know, just dying on the cross. It's not true. And, And the question you need to ask yourself is, what does the Bible say? So Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. He did not have long hair. Samson did have long hair. But Samson was the exception because of the fact that he was a Nazarene from birth. That's why he had long hair. And of course, you know the story. His hair got cut. He lost his strength. We'll talk about that tonight. Let me just say this, though. Because if you kept your place in 1 Corinthians 11, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. Because nature itself, according to the Bible, tells you, that men should have short hair and women should have long hair. This this thing of having long hair or letting your hair grow out was meant to be a reproach. So it wasn't like Samson was just walking around and people were like, look at that guy. They were like, look at that guy. What's wrong with that guy? By the way, that's what we should be saying today when we see a bunch of long-haired guys. What's wrong with that guy? They, it, was, it was a reproach. It was meant to be a reproach. He was The consecration of his separation was upon his head. That's what it said in Numbers, remember? His long hair was a reproach, something people looked at and say, that's not right. Does not nature itself teach you that men should not? Now, I realize we live in this wicked, reprobate society today where it's normal for men to have long hair, but throughout history and definitely in Old Testament Israel, this was not a normal thing. So it was a reproach. It was something that was a reproach. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Go back to Numbers chapter 6. Let me just say this. The Bible says that there should be a difference between male and female. Genesis 127, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. (laughs) Let me explain something to you. This LGBTQ transgender garbage today that is trying to just unite the sexes is not of God. God said he made them male and female. God said they are to be different. He said does not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame to him, but if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. And it is a shameful nation we live in where it's normal now for some dude to walk down with his long hair and his dress on like some sort of a freak. It's not of God. Even nature itself, the Bible says, will tell you that. Your own conscience will tell you that. So the fact that Samson had long hair and the fact that these people had long hair, it was a shame. And even for me, like if I took a Nazareth out today for a year and I didn't cut my hair, it wouldn't be long, but it'd be embarrassing. And I'd be like, people would be like, you need a haircut. i am like, shut up. <laughs> By the way, sometimes people say to me, you need a haircut today, even now. And I say, shut up. (laughs) Because I'm like you, I'm busy. I always think it's funny when people are like, I get a haircut every three days. I'm like, you must not be very busy in life. Sometimes I go weeks without getting a haircut because I'm busy. Because I'm building, I'm battling, I'm growing. It's just not like my number one priority. How good I already got the best looking girl. I don't need to look better. She's already stuck with me. So when she has time, she'll cut my hair, and if she doesn't, shut up. <laughs> Number six eighteen. And the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and shall take the hair of the head of his separation and put it in the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the sodden shoulder of the ram and one unleavened cake out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after the hair of his separation is shaven. So notice they were to grow their hair, but once the vow was done, they got a haircut. Okay, so again, Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene, meaning he was from Nazareth. Samson did have long hair, but it was a reproach. You know what the Bible says? Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. And you know, today, the fact that I stand up and preach that men should not have long hair, and women should have long hair, and that God created male and female, and just even mentioning LGBT and all that stuff, that makes me a reproach today. You know, in our society, people say, oh, you're a reproach. But you know what? I'll, stay, I'll, I'll stand with the Bible. Amen. In season, out of season. Back when Ronald Reagan was president and every pastor preached like this, I would have preached like this back then. And right now, when Joe Biden is president and almost no pastor preaches like this, I'm still going to preach like this. So I don't make my decisions based off what the crowd thinks is normal. I base it off what does the Bible say? Amen. So we ought to believe the Bible. We ought to know what the Bible says. We ought to Look, my loyalty is to the Bible. You say, you're never going to grow a church like this. We got like 244 people here right now, and we don't have enough chairs for all of you. I don't, we don't get the 400-seat auditorium until like six months from now. So until then, my heart will go on singing and preaching. <laughs> Numbers chapter 6. Here's the other... Then when we get into the forest, then I'm going to be like Joel Osteen, you know, like, just kidding, of course. Yeah, I'm just going to be like, sugar and light, just like, your best life now. That's a joke for some of you. Number six. Number chapter six, verse six. Here's the next parameter, avoiding dead bodies. They were to avoid dead bodies. Number six, six. All the days of his, of he, th- that he separated himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. Come at no dead body. And here's what's interesting. They were to not come to any dead body, which was, if you know the story of Samson, something he did not do. He went out, you know, and, and it wasn't just the people he killed because God wanted him to kill the people when he went to battle, but it, he, he went, went and found the corpse of the lion and all those things. So obviously Samson was just a, a different thing. But, and Samson was wrong for that. But here, they're told that they are to come at no dead body, but then notice what it says, verse 7. He shall not make himself unclean for his father, or for his mother, or for his brother, or for his sister, when they die. Because the consecration of his God is upon his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. So here, the Nazarite, he took this vow, which said, for this amount of time, I'm not going to come at any dead body. You say, what happens if your father died, or your mother died, or your brother died, or your sister died during that time? He was not to to be near them. He was not to go to the funeral. It was, he shall not make himself unclean. Look at verse 7. He shall not make himself unclean for his father, or for his mother, or for his brother, or for his sister when they die. Because the consecrated chain of his God is upon his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. This was obviously not their whole life, but if he he said, this is something that people needed to to consider. If he said, I'm going to take a vow for six months, then he needed to realize if anybody died in those six months, if he's going to keep his vow, he, he could not approach the dead body. Obviously, this is an Old Testament uh, uh, vow that does not apply today, but there is a New Testament application. Go back to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And obviously, God is not against you going to to funerals of loved ones today, but there is a principle that we can take from it. Luke 14, 25. Luke 14, 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters. Notice it, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So what is this? You know, obviously the Bible teaches that you should honor your father and mother, that children should obey their parents. You know, the Bible teaches that you should love your family and love your parents. But what Jesus is saying here is that the love that you and I have for God should be such that the love for anything else could almost be seen as hate. What do you mean? It means that when you have to make a decision between God and your father, God and your mother, God and your wife, God and your children... God and your brethren, God and your sisters, that you look at your father and you look at your mother and you look at your wife and you look at your children and you look at your brethren and you look at your sister and you say, I love you, but I love God more than I love you and I'm going to go with what God said and then those people are going to say, do you hate us? Do you hate us? And to say, no, I don't hate you. But my love for God might make you feel like I do. Because if I have to choose between anyone and God, I'll choose God every time. And by the way, let me just say this. Every father that chooses God before his children ends up being a better father than the father who just becomes loyal and makes an idol just of his children. Every husband that chooses God before his wife becomes a better husband for his wife than the man that just makes an idol of his wife and forsakes God. So this idea is this, that look... While they were consecrated to the Lord, if a choice had to be made between family and God, God said, "I expect you to choose me." And in the Christian life, God says, "I expect you to choose me." And of course, you know we don't we don't want to. We we love our family. We want to see our family saved. I grew up in a Christian home. I'm thankful for the fact that literally my entire you know immediate family that i grew up with my mom and my dad and my sister and my brother they're all here in my church right now you know so praise the lord for it and that's not the case for everybody my wife grew up catholic she got saved when she was 17 she's led many of her church uh, of her family to christ but almost none of them go to church or live for god and we've had to separate from some of them we've had to separate from some of them because of the bible And because we're just going to say, look, if you're going to do that, we're not going to be around you. If you're going to live that way, we're going to be around you. We're going to make a choice to separate. And people say like, oh, your own family? I don't care if it's your Siamese twin. Choose God. Choose God over anyone. Choose God over everyone. Choose God. That's the principle. Look at Luke 9, verse 59. This is actually very close to what is being spoken of in Numbers. Luke 9, 59, And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And look, this this idea of separating from that which was dead, here's a spiritual application. You can go back to number 6. Here's a spiritual application. Is that we should not, we should not, we should not hold the things of this world strongly i mentioned this before about the song but we we sing it again today I just, I just love this little phrase in this song the things of earth will dim and lose their value if we recall they're borrowed for a while i just always i just always think it's interesting people make choices in their lives they decide what they're going to do in their life based off what car they can drive where they can work what house they can live in, what neighborhood they can live in, how much property they can own, the clothes they can wear. They make all these decisions for their life based off stupid things that do not matter. You know, it doesn't matter where you live. You know, it doesn't matter what you drive. You know, it doesn't matter what you wear. You know, it doesn't matter where you work. You know, none of that matters. Only one life so soon shall pass. Only what's done for Christ shall last. Two choices on the shelf, to live for Christ or live for self. And many of you and many of us and many throughout the ages will get to the end of their lives and realize I wasted my life because I lived for things that did not matter. You know what Jesus says? Let the dead bury the dead. People often, they, they get like, well, do, yeah, let's get into politics and let's, let's get all about Donald Trump. And you know, my response is, let the dead bury the dead. <laughs> I've got more important things than to deal with dead people. You know that unsaved people are spiritually dead? We must deal with the God of the living. We must preach life that they might be born again. That they might come to the life and come to the life. Let the dead bury the dead. Stop focusing on things that don't matter in this world. You know, and you say, I don't like it. But Jesus said, follow me. The guy said, "Can I can I bury my father? And he said, let the dead bury the dead. And look, here's the truth, and I know this, I know this about my parents, like my parents have often, and I'm thankful, I'm so thankful that I grew up in the home that I grew up in. You know, I remember my dad often would say this to us as children, he's like, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna honor me, honor me while I'm alive. You know, and he's, and he would tell us, here's how you honor me, live for God. That's what I want. And he would say, you know, you can skip bringing me the flowers at my graveside, I'm not gonna be there. You know know what he was telling us? Let the dead bury the dead. Obviously, if my parents pass away one day, we're going to bury them, and I will visit them, and all of that. Obviously, we're going to do all that. But the point is this. This life in this physical world is nothing. Only that which is spiritual is important. Only that which is eternal is important. Only that which is of God is the things that we should live for. The things of earth will dim and lose their value if we recall they're borrowed for a while. Go back to Numbers chapter 6. Look at verse 9. If any man dies suddenly by him, he hath defiled the head of his consecration, then he shall shave his head in the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day shall she shave it, and on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make an atonement for him, for that he sinned by the dead the dead and shall hollow his head the same day. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just say this. It's interesting that even if someone died suddenly by him, they still it was still over. And you know what the Bible teaches is this, that there are sins of ignorance, sins that sometimes we commit not knowing maybe what the Bible says or not intending to it. But let me tell you something. God is the God of responsibility. And he says, look, even if, even if you take this consecration and a man suddenly died by you, he said, you still are done. You still have to, on the seventh day, shave your head And bring all these offerings, he said, because God, you know, God expects us to take personal responsibility for our lives. You say, oh, I did this, but I didn't know. I get that. And I'm not mad at you. And and God, look, unto whom much is given, much shall be required. And God requires more of those that have been given more light. But at the end of the day, God still holds us responsible. God holds us responsible. Even if a man died very suddenly by him, even if a man died very suddenly by him. So here are the principles of separation. Be sober, abstain from anything intoxicating. Die to self, deny self, abstain from anything indulgent. Embrace being a reproach for Christ. Because look, today, if you stand for the Bible, not for the watered-down joke of of churches that most churches are today, but you actually stand for what the Bible actually says, you will be a reproach. People will hate you. They will sue you. They will preach against you. They will protest you. They, because, and it's not because they hate us. It's because they hate the God of the Bible. Yeah. And we should choose God over everyone. And we should go- choose God over everything. But the dead bury their dead. We should put God first. Let's bow here tonight will prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. And there's so many principles in this Nazarite vow that apply to us. Lord, I pray, I realize there's a lot here and, and even more than we could cover in one sermon, but I pray that something would stick with someone today. Maybe somebody today needs to make a decision, I'm, I'm going to stop drinking alcohol. It's not of God, it's not what God wants. Maybe somebody needs to say, I'm going to quit trying to pursue the dead and trying to live and fit in with the dead. I'm going to let the dead bury the dead, and I'm going to focus on Christ. Maybe somebody just needs to make the decision and say, you know what? I need to draw close to God. I can make the choice. I can make the decision to draw close to God. Lord, I pray you'd help us. I pray that you'd help us to be people of the book, that we would ask the question, what does the Bible say? Because that's all that matters. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Matt come up and lead us.